Hey friends, before we get to today's episode, I want to talk to you about unicorns. You know I think we're all unicorns because we have special gifts and talents, and because we're all so special, it's important that we invest in things that will help us get to the next level. In fact, 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. One of the things I learned was that I felt like my interests and passions were more aligned in being a pure litigator as opposed to being somebody who was running a business and maybe dealing with the legal components of it. I enjoyed the litigation practice more. I felt like it made me a better litigator because obviously your specific responsibilities as litigation counsel to any company is really just managing a lawsuit. But you're really an advisor on all things business related whenever you're retained as an attorney. And so if you have the perspective of being the person running the business and those considerations that go into that, you can be far better counsel to somebody when you're on the other side of that. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope as always is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. So today we are continuing our celebration of Black folks and love by centering Black love. I had a wonderful conversation with my husband, Shagun Babatunde, and we share a bit of our love story and learn about his inspiring journey. And if you want to see some of Krizel and V's work from 214 Photography, our wedding photographers featured on the last episode, then head over to my Instagram. I'm going to share more of our wedding photos this month. And before we get to our conversation, I do want to share my definition of Black love and its significance in my life. I know that we have a diverse audience and various backgrounds, and I just wanted to break down the term for those who may be unfamiliar with it, especially the listeners outside of the States. I know there are cultural differences depending on where you're from, and you may not know much about Black love. First off, I want to say that love shared between any humans, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, romantic, or platonic, is beautiful. I firmly believe that as humans, we are here to love. Love helps, holds, and heals. And Black love to me is sharing a journey of love and support and comfort with someone else who understands how to move through spaces, institutions, and essentially a society that wasn't built for you. This understanding feels like a soft place to land. And I'd like to share a story to better illustrate this definition. So in my conversation with Lexi Butler, I actually shared a story about the realization that I often wear this invisible armor and institutions of privilege. 
I'd hide my authentic thoughts and feelings in the name of professionalism. And although I'd begun to slowly shed this armor after becoming more comfortable at my job, I realized that I didn't really let my guard down until I was in an all-Black space. In one particular meeting post-George Floyd, when allies began joining Black affinity group meetings across organizations, I raised skepticism about a particular issue based on my lived experience, and instead of being affirmed, I was questioned. I'd never experienced this before in a safe space. Although I was used to being questioned or asked to explain my reasoning regarding a particular position as an attorney, that was when I had my armor on. I was ready. I was prepared. But at this particular moment, I had taken it off, and I cried immediately. The white male ally felt bad about his comments and asked to have a phone call after the meeting. I knew he felt so bad, he joined this meeting to help the cause, not make me cry. I was happy to chat with him and get on the same page. I just needed to collect myself first. My husband, Shagun, came into the room after my meeting and saw that I was upset. I explained the situation and told him that I was probably just emotional because of my period and that we probably just have different communication styles. I thought he must be an INTP, logical, cerebral, and his genuine curiosity may have come off as an interrogation to an ESFJ like me who often takes things personally. Yes, Myers-Briggs is coming up again, everyone. You guys know I love it. (laughs) And my husband said that this all might be true, but you're also right. Your skepticism as a black woman navigating corporate America is warranted. A lot of other black folks in that room are probably thinking the same thing. And you just said it. And he was right. The group text confirmed that my thoughts were reflective of what the other black associates were thinking. Shagun told me that when I have a call with him, I should explain this. He said because he is an ally, he has good intentions and that he probably wants to learn. If he's going to advocate for black people, then you need to explain the history and foundation of the skepticism and the sheer historical evidence showing how American systems have failed black people from government to corporate America. Quick side note, black folks, it is not your responsibility to educate white people about black issues. I understand that. But in this moment, I felt empowered to do so. Shagun told me skepticism is not bad. It's realistic. And then he started to provide specific examples I could use to educate him. Shagun was on a roll, so I just started taking notes and had them ready for the call. I had an uncomfortable conversation with the white male ally, and it went really well. We gained a better understanding of each other and moved forward to continue to do important work for the Black community. I've also seen the positive impact this conversation has had on his advocacy, which often includes a note about actually listening to Black people about their lived experiences. After that conversation, I rushed into Shagun's arms and thanked him. He affirmed me. He validated my feelings and perspective. He empowered me to speak up. And as a Black man, he truly understood my experience. That is Black love. And I'll honestly always remember that moment. It was just such a beautiful moment. And we have lots of them in our relationship. And I just wanted to provide that example. But before we get to our conversation, I do want to tell you a bit more about Shagun. So Shagun Babatunde, he grew up in Portland, Oregon with a loving, supportive, and strict Nigerian father, my lovely (laughs) father-in-law, and a kind, compassionate, free-spirited American mother of English and Irish descent, my lovely mother-in-law. 
Although his parents divorced when he was young, they both remarried and he gained a larger family with lots of siblings and cousins. Growing up, he discovered his passion for debate and became state champion. He went on to Duke University, where he received his BS in psychology and graduated from Harvard Law, where he was a member of Harvard Law Review. Before law school, he actually took a gap year to work at City Year, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping students and schools succeed. He's worked at a mid-sized commercial litigation firm, founded a tech startup, and currently works as a trial lawyer at a boutique litigation firm. But his greatest accomplishment, of course, is marrying me. <laughs> but seriously, Shagun is an introvert and would not go onto a podcast to share his life journey ever. He's very laid back and humble, but one thing I've learned that is necessary in marriage is compromise, so I'm so glad that he shared his story, and I can't wait for you all to hear it, so let's get to it. All right. I am so excited to have my husband join us on No Straight Path. So thank you so much for being here. Of course. All right. So we're doing things a little bit differently, and we are actually going to start with our love story. So I will chime in, but can you start? (laughs) Yeah. Our love story is great, both because it's appropriately nerdy and also because it's a great testament to how the universe speaks to you. You give me a lot of hard time about how I love the alchemist, but that's one of the main messages in the alchemist is that the universe has its own language and that when you speak to it a certain way, it speaks back to you. And I think me meeting you is a great testament to that. So this must have been 2015 and I was just coming out of city year, living in Miami before that for four years, living at Durham, North Carolina and not really having a healthy framework for having romantic relationships with women and me feeling really unfulfilled with the relationships that I had had. And for the first time, really wanting something different, finding a partner that I could truly build with who really had all the qualities that I'd want in a life partner. And I swear within two months of me really developing that new framework is when I met you for the first time. And that's when the universe spoke back to me and and introduced me, introduced (laughs) you to me. Yeah. And it was during admitted students weekend. I was visiting just to check out the campus. I had pretty much in my mind decided that I was going to go to Harvard, but I hadn't formally committed. And you were one of the first people I met. We were doing a, a tour of a dorm room and you lived in that dorm at the time. And the tour guide who was walking us around knew you, like pretty much everybody does. (laughs) And I just remember when I saw you for the first time, we were walking through the hallway and you were in the common room studying for some class. And I learned later that you were really going through it at this time. You were under the gun with the 1L courses and all the stresses involved in that. But I didn't see any of that when I met you for the first time. It was, you were just like the brightest light. And the energy that you radiated, the you were just such a great person to be around. I noticed that right away. Obviously, I noticed you were beautiful. And in my mind, though, honestly, I was thinking she's, she's probably married. She probably is taken already. So in my mind, I didn't even really register <laughs> you as my life partner because you seemed too good to be true. But when I ultimately ended up going to, and at the time, by the way, that was kind of the case. You were in a relationship at the yeah. time. So <laughs> it was too good to be true at that moment, but the story wasn't done yet. So I do end up enrolling at HLS the next year. We knew each other, but we weren't super close again. You were still in a relationship at the time, but we, you know, we were friendly. We hung out. We went to a few parties together, had a good time. And then toward the end of the year, 
you broke up with your boyfriend. And I didn't know this. I wasn't like following it closely or anything, but people who knew you, of course, did. And they end up coming to me after I did an Ames competition, like, style debate with you as my judge and said, hey, you know, Ashley's like single now. She she said you were cute and you did a great job at the... At this Ames competition thing, and I was just through the roof about that. But it was the very end of the year, so I don't even think I saw you again after somebody had told me this. So yeah, you yeah. actually ended up reaching out to me over the summer to congratulate me for making Law Review. I know. I'm going to interject really quickly Yeah, because you did a great job so far of telling the story. <laughs> it actually added way more context. And I even forgot about that first time that we met because I was just so overwhelmed with 1L studies and... Just, I looked a hot mess and that's just hilarious that you remembered me. So, (laughs) but I remember, so for listeners who don't know what the Ames competition is, it's essentially a moot court competition that all Harvard law students have to go through. Most law students have to go through it at their various institutions. And I knew who Shagun was. And I just remember that specific argument. I was a legal writing advisor at the time and I just was so impressed with him. I was so impressed with the substance of his argument as, yes, very nerdy (laughs) and just his presence. And I knew who he was in like the Harvard Black Law Students Association kind of social scene, but I hadn't really seen him in an academic scene. And I also was single. So I was looking at people and men through different eyes, I guess, at that time. And so someone in the legal writing advisor group actually told Shagun, like, I did not know this wasn't supposed to get out to him that I knew he was cute or that I said that he was cute, but it got out to him because of our dear friend, Jeff. So thanks, Jeff. Shout out to Jeff. (laughs) Yeah. So you end up reaching out to me over the summer to congratulate me for making Law Review. And again, I think this is another example of the universe just speaking to you when you start putting it out there. This is the sort of relationship I'm interested in now. This is the sort of life I want for myself. Things just naturally start to happen to to, to put that in progress. So that was another sign. We set up a date for basically the week I think I got back from my 1L summer. We set up a date at Chipotle, which is like... (laughs) For people who don't know, that's far and away my favorite restaurant. So that was definitely my (laughs) suggestion. Ashley was probably like 30 minutes late, something like that. But other than that, it it was great. We had a great conversation. We started to hang out more after that. And then probably not more than a... A month and maybe some change north or south of that, we started, you know, officially dating. And it was all she wrote after that. (laughs) Yeah, that's the story. I love it. I love our love story. Thank you for sharing it. And it is so fascinating how you talk about the universe and just putting things out there that you want. And then this relationship came your way. And I think that's so beautiful. And I feel like I did the same thing at like 18 and that never happened for me. So it took me (laughs) 10 years (laughs) to meet you, but it happened. So that's great. Uh, Every time you say that, I'm like, I love that. I love that for you. So listeners, if it does take a little bit longer with love, it's okay. I'm a testament to that as well. And I love to go back to the normal framework of the show and just start with the beginning, start with your childhood before I ever even met you. You know, who was Shagun? How did you grow up? Tell us about your family, your upbringing, and perhaps how your childhood self reflects who you are today. Yeah, I had a really blessed and charmed 
childhood, starting with my two parents, who both just showed me an amount of love that I only appreciate more in retrospect as I get older and look back on it. And it was great because the love that my parents showed me from the time I was an infant really balanced each other out in ways that I think were really healthy for me. So for my mom, it was the constant affirmation I got as a kid, just going above and beyond to make me believe that she earnestly believed that I was really special in both my intellectual aptitude, but more so than that, just in my internal moral compass and sense of what was right and wrong and just making me feel that at my core, I was a really good person. That was something my mom really instilled in me. On my dad's side, it was a lot of the same things, but my mom was the sort of person who would always volunteer those affirmations about how great she thought I was. My dad would affirm that if you asked him, but he was more of the mindset of like, okay, yes, we've established you're really smart. That's obvious now. Now you need to go out and prove it to the world. You need to take the gifts that you have and couple it with some discipline to contribute to society and to be successful and be the kind of man you want to grow up to be. And so that sort of more of a focus on discipline and taking the skills that you have to translate it into success wasn't as much of an emphasis from my mom. She was more of like a, whatever you do, I'm going to love you and it's going to be great. And my dad was like, no, you need to do this. You have these gifts, so you need to do this. I need to see these results. And I think that pairing was really healthy for me because it gave me a good sense of ego, but it also, I was able to stay humble and, and realize there were still many things for me to achieve. And that was created my ambition that I took me through middle school, high school, college, and beyond. But the roots of all that were really laid in my childhood growing up with my parents. So that was really wonderful. My parents separated when I was young. So I spent the first, I'd say, 10 or so years living with my mom, and then 10 to 18 lived with my dad before I went to college. And that was great. Especially, I think when I moved in with my dad, I was able to get some stability that is really, really important in the American school system for being able to succeed, just being able to go home to a consistent home environment that provides you all the resources that you need, provides you all the additional resources that you may need as you challenge yourself in the classroom. And I was able to really have that for the years that mattered. I always tell people when you get to high school, that's when your performance really starts to have ripple effects. And I had that throughout my high school years and was able to pursue extracurricular activities I was really interested in and had a lot of success in those as well. Again, at the encouragement and support of both my parents. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And there's one particular moment in your childhood that really stands out for me, and that was your decision to actually move in with your dad. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, My parents broke up when I was, I think, about two years old. I really don't have any memory of them being together. But originally, I lived with my mom. And I lived with her probably from about two years old to around 10 or so. And my mom's situation was not stable. In fact, there were periods of time where we were in homeless shelters or or homeless entirely. And while for the most part, that was the only frame of reference that I had, so it wasn't the worst thing, it was, it was all I knew, I did have moments periodically, monthly, where I would go stay with my dad for the weekend, and I'd gain an appreciation for those weekends that life could be different, 
that you could have more stability, that you could have more structure. And that sort of sparked my interest in getting more stability in my home situation. But it didn't immediately translate to me like asking to move in with my dad or anything like that because I love my mom and my mom was a great mom in a lot of respects. And I wanted to continue to be around her because of the love that I had for her. And that was also the only situation that I really knew. So I was a little bit reluctant to change the status quo or to ask to change the status quo. But the more time progressed and the more weekends I spent with my dad, the more that interest started to develop. And I would drop little feelers here and there to my dad. Hey, do you think there could ever be a situation where maybe I lived here permanently? You know, I would sort of do the same thing with my mom and not make, again, not making any sort of demands, not even being super explicit about what I wanted, but sort of dropping feelers and and hints at it. And eventually they did get the hint and they had a conversation between themselves about what they thought would be best for me. And it was a difficult conversation, I think, for both of them, probably a little bit more so for my mom, because obviously the context was her not being the primary guardian for me anymore. But to her credit, when she came to me and asked, is this something that you'd really want? When she saw that that was what I wanted, she was immediately open to it. And I made that transition probably around yeah, 10, 11 years old. Thank you so much for sharing that. That particular moment stood out for me because I think it's unique and it seems like you listened to your inner voice there. So friends, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about another amazing podcast and that's Latinx Empower hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, which is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Latinx Empower is a podcast that features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insights from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their careers. I think you'll love a recent episode on toxic positivity in the workplace. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcast. Do you feel like there were other moments in your life when you were younger where you listened to your inner voice? Yeah, both younger and older, I found that listening to my inner voice has always led me to the best results in my life. One example from when I was younger was when I was in middle school, going into high school, thinking about what I wanted to do from an extracurricular perspective. Obviously, I had academic ambitions, but I knew that I would, to be a more well-rounded person, I should explore uh, interest beyond the classroom. And the first thing that came to my mind was speech and debate. In fact, it was basically the only thing that came to my mind because I knew I loved to talk. I knew I loved to debate. And I felt, I didn't know this because I hadn't done it before, but I just had this feeling that I would be good at it. And so I immediately pursued it. It was like one of the first meeting I went to when I got into high school. Then like the first month I went to the speech and debate meeting and immediately connected with it. And that really set me up for the rest of my life because I had so much success in speech and debate going on to win district championships, state championships. And that opened the door for me to get into these nice undergraduate colleges. And then that, of course, setting me up to get into nice law schools and then setting me up to get into professional careers that I'm interested in within the law. So it all really does trace in many respects, not entirely, but many respects to that decision to follow my heart 
and what my gut instinct was about speech and debate and my interest in it in that in that regard. So that's one example. But I, I've honestly found that whenever I have that inner voice telling me, do this, don't do this, it's pretty much always been in my interest to listen to that inner voice. You know, nobody knows what's best for you better than you. And you really become an adult when you realize that, when you realize your parents, your friends, your significant other, nobody knows. What? Yeah, nobody knows what's better for you than you do. And yeah. that um, inspires you to really follow that inner voice. And that's almost always the right move. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I actually don't know if we've ever talked about this. I'm curious. Are there times where you have not followed your inner voice and it's had negative consequences? There are times I felt like I have moved based on how I think I should move, even if it's not consistent with my own personality. And I think just going back to even what my social goals were going into into college, whether it be with women, whether it be with partying, all those things, I think I was moving in a way that wasn't as much true to who I am naturally, but was moving in accordance with what social media was telling me or with what popular culture was telling me, with what popular music was telling me I should be doing at that age in my life. And I think I, I did those things. And then I looked back and thought that really wasn't that satisfying or gratifying or true to myself. So that would probably be an example. I love that. Okay. We have talked about that. Yeah. We talked about everything. I always try to say something new to you. I'm like, did you know this about me? Did you know this about me? You're like, yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> No, but that's a good example. So you are the great debater. I always say you love to debate, whether it's the law, sports, political issues. And I do want to get to your career now and learn a little bit more about what interests you in the law. Can you talk to us about a specific legal policy or doctrine that is really interesting, something that perhaps listeners should pay attention to? What I really like about what I do, I work at a trial boutique now. And I worked at a, a, a litigation law firm, oriented law firm before this, is I love this, the storytelling aspects of being a trial lawyer and developing your themes of your case in a way that can resonate with regular people. One of my mentors has told me, and I think it's totally true, that the defining feature of being any trial lawyer is your storyteller. And I agree with that. And I think that's the most interesting aspect of being a trial lawyer is developing your story and thinking strategically through how to tell your story. So that's probably the aspect of the work that I enjoy the most is the storytelling aspects of it. In terms of a legal doctrine that I've always found, is I find a lot of legal doctrines interesting for different reasons. I think that there's been a lot of discussions within the last few years about government abuses, particularly in the context of police brutality. And for me, one legal doctrine that consistently should come up in those conversations and perhaps doesn't come up enough is the doctrine of qualified immunity, which is a, a legal principle that's actually decently sound as a sort of academic matter the, that the United States doesn't want it or its agents or its representatives to be getting sued all of the time. It's not healthy for the country. It's not productive. And so there is a certain protection given to people who operate under the color of U.S. authority. And that includes police officers who are acting within the course of their duties. And the short of it is when they are acting in the course of those duties, pretty much whatever they do, unless it is the most 
oftentimes it includes the most egregious conduct. But unless it's something that's been clearly defined in statute or in some prior case saying they're definitely not allowed to do this, then they probably are allowed to do it. And, and it turns out they're allowed to do many, many things and not face any true repercussions for it. And I'm not a behavioral psychologist by trade, but I would gather that if you are operating and performing your duties and you know that you can pretty much do anything that you want without any real recourse, you're probably going to be more likely to engage in improper conduct. And I think that that's a big part of why we see these constant instances of police brutality or abuse of authority against all groups, including obviously black people, disproportionately black people. And so I think the discussion around the role of qualified immunity and what changes should be made to achieve the proper objectives that I think it sets out to achieve while not enabling rampant abuses of authority, that conversation should be more in the forefront. And, you know, that's something that I've always been been interested in. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. It's certainly very timely. And even when we were in law school together, that was a really political time for the issues regarding law enforcement and specifically the Black community. And yeah. So as you know, the title of this podcast is No Straight Path. And there was a point where you did take a break from legal practice to actually start your own company. And I wanted to know if you could share with us that specific story and the lessons learned. Yeah. I mean, one of the lessons learned is if you're going to start your own company, you're really not taking too much of a break from legal practice because law is such a big part of how companies are formed, how they operate, how they strategize. This is why, especially as companies get bigger, they'll have these giant in-house legal teams, some of which are purely concerned with how to respond when the company gets sued, but others who just help the company navigate complex legal landscapes. It's just an inherent part of what it means to be a company in the US. And that was one of the interesting, rewarding things about me launching this company is gaining an appreciation and understanding for those legal components that go into to running a business. The business, from in my case, the startup, it was an, an esports-based startup that was all about enabling people to do what we call skills wagering in video games. So anybody who's interested in video games who's listening to this probably has been in this situation where they've been in a room, maybe with a friend, playing some competitive video game, maybe Madden, maybe 2K, maybe a boxing game, and maybe your friend beats you or you beat them, and it starts to get really competitive, the competitive juices start to flow in the room, and then somebody slaps down $20 and says, you know, you can't beat me with money on the line, right? Like, we take this super seriously, and, we, and there's money at stake, then, then I'm going to win. And then somebody else puts down the 20 and then you play. There's a whole market of people who love competitive-based games with real stakes on the line like that, both because it's obviously an opportunity to make money, but above that, it's an opportunity to feel like you're really playing for something, like you're not just doing this recreationally. Something's on the line, and that makes the game itself more fun, more fulfilling. And that is the dynamic I tried to capture with this startup that I founded, which was based on a phone app. So you would connect with other competitive gamers in a game of choice, and then it would allow you to place cash stakes on them. And as a lifelong gamer, 
as somebody who has an appreciation for competition, I thought that number one, this was a market that hadn't been tapped into in any real sense yet. And number two, that it would something that aligned with my own personal interests. And, and so I felt like there was opportunity and then there was underlying interest on my part. And so I started floating this idea of, you know, this app that would match up people and allow them to put cash stakes on there on competitive games and was constantly getting a lot of affirmation about how good the idea was, about how there didn't seem to be a real market for it. There was a consumer market for it, but there wasn't a service market for it yet. And I started to have those conversations with people at my firm. And to my surprise, they were actually really, number one, they, they thought the idea was great as well, but they were also supportive of me pursuing it and understanding of the fact that it's not really something that you can pursue in earnest when you're working in big law. So as those conversations developed, one of the things that came out of it was, hey, we're open to giving you an opportunity if, if you want to effectively take a sabbatical and pursue this startup. And if it works, if you get it off the ground, if you start getting a big consumer base and what have you, then great. Come back to us when you're the big company that's getting sued and you need counsel. But if it doesn't work out, you know, you have a return offer so that you can come back here and focus more so on big corporate litigation, which is what I was doing at the time. So I was very gracious for that offer from them and for that opportunity. And I took it and worked on it for about, you know, six months with a, a group of fellow co-founders who were equally passionate about the idea and had expertise in different areas that would be really helpful in getting the business off the ground. And did that for about, yeah, six, seven months before I returned back to litigation practice. It was really fulfilling. I definitely learned a lot. One of the things I learned was that I felt like my interests and passions were more aligned in being a pure litigator as opposed to being somebody who was running a business and maybe dealing with the legal components of it. I enjoyed the litigation practice more. I felt like it made me a better litigator because obviously your specific responsibilities as litigation counsel to any company is really just managing a lawsuit. But you're really an advisor on all things business related whenever you're retained as an attorney. And so if you have the perspective of being the person running the business and those considerations that go into that, you can be far better counsel to somebody when you're on the other side of that. And so learned a lot from that. And so even though we're not pursuing that business full time anymore, sort of have put that to the side as all of us have dedicated our professional pursuits elsewhere, at least for now, uh, the lessons from it have been, have been paying off for me ever since I, ever since I did it. I love that so much. And I just, I loved seeing you start your own thing. As you probably all can see, there's a pattern here. Shagun talked about his love for storytelling when it came to litigation. I always talk about my love for storytelling and he took a sabbatical to work on his startup. I am taking a sabbatical to work on my podcast. So it's just really funny because he pointed out the fact that we influence each other so much because I certainly thought all of this just came from me. And <laughs> I think that the other thing that's really interesting about that period of time that you took to start the business, it was actually extremely helpful for our relationship. Sometimes you don't know why something is happening until later. And at that time, it was when my mom was sick and when she ultimately passed away during that six to seven month period. And that was a time where I really needed to lean on him and really needed to, I need that support. And, you know, you were there, you were able to be really, really present 
in a way that I'm not sure you would have been able to because you were running your own schedule and you had more flexibility. And so I just feel I was just so grateful. So there's multiple reasons for why a break can be really helpful for your professional experience and your personal life. Yeah. And I would just add to that too. One of the things that had me most anxious when I was considering doing the startup full time was, you know, am I sacrificing anything in terms of my ability to get back to what I was doing? And me getting the return offer from my original firm was a great comfort in that respect. But especially now that I look back, even if I didn't have that, the truth is that that opportunity was always going to be there to go back to doing, you know, big corporate litigation. And it's invaluable to be able to step away from that and touch something different, even if only to confirm that what you were doing originally is what you actually want to do because you have that confirmation. And I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but I I think it applies probably to more people than they realize. You can always get back to what you were doing in terms of, in my case, it was litigation on all different fields. If you take a break and walk the unbeaten path, you can always return to the path that you were on. And that turned out to be true in my case. And I think it's true for a lot of people. I love that. I love that. All right. And since this is a special love edition, I do want to get your relationship advice. You want to make sure any relationship is built on a healthy foundation. And you can't really have a healthy foundation for a relationship with anybody else until you have a healthy relationship with yourself. And so you have to figure out who you are, what your values are, and what it is that this is evolving for everybody, but have a sense of what you want to achieve and be in life so that you can make sure that if you pair up with somebody else to be your life partner, that it's built on a healthy foundation because your values, your goals are aligned and that you can communicate them clearly so that there's an, an understanding both ways about how the relationship is going to proceed. If, if there's a lack of understanding, if there's a misalignment on values, then that can be something that can be overcome in the short term, but in the long term, that poor foundation will manifest and things will break down. So work on yourself first, figure out who you are first. And then once you've done that, start exploring who would be a good partner in, in all those areas. I think that's great advice. And mine actually is, it's a compliment to that. And I think as humans, like you said, we are always evolving and changing. So as perhaps your values might change, I talk about it on the podcast about the change in values, how I wanted more balance. And that was something I had to communicate to my husband. And it was a great conversation. When you start to see yourself change, it's important to talk to your partner about that so that you guys can support one another. And the other thing that I think is really important is as you continue to have this strong understanding of self, then start to have this strong understanding of your partner. And I always go back to the (laughs) Myers-Briggs letters because I think they're extremely helpful. And my therapist said this to me. She said, there are two relationships that are really important in life. One is a relationship with self and two is a relationship with your lifelong partner and really understanding them. And so a funny thing that actually recently happened, Valentine's Day is coming up. And we were talking about gifts for one another and the Myers-Breakdown has gifts that the other person would like based on their Myers-Briggs sign. And mine was something sentimental and his was something very cerebral and logical. 
And we both knew it because we've had this understanding of self and of each other. So that's something that I think has been really helpful. And I've just really enjoyed this conversation with you, husband. Thank you for coming on. I usually end the podcast with final thoughts. So if you have any, please share. Thank you for having me on. Super proud of you that you're doing this and chasing your passions and and walking your path. And you're an inspiration to me and so many others, Ashley. Keep walking it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.